Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Drs. Morgan L. W. Hazelton and Dr. Rachel K. Hinkle to discuss their new book, Persuading the Supreme Court, The Significance of Briefs in Judicial Decision-Making, published by the University of Canvas Press in 2022. Each June in the United States, scholars, journalists, lawmakers, law enforcers, lawyers, and members of the public wait for the announcement of major decisions from the Supreme Court. Justices often read a summary of their decision from the bench dressed in their robes. Paper copies are available in a special office and more recently on the Supreme Court website. This year, the Supreme Court opinions have shaped policy on affirmative action, public accommodation for LGBTQ people, voting rights, student loans, and the power of states to control election procedure. Before these cases are decided, the parties, outside individuals, and interest groups invest an estimated $25 to $50 billion a year to produce roughly 1,000 amicus, or friend of the court, briefs. These briefs strategically provide information to the justices to convince them to vote in a particular way. How are these briefs produced? Who pays for their research and writing? What impact do they have on the ultimate decisions of the Supreme Court? In persuading the Supreme Court, doctors Hazelton and Hinkle draw on political science research on the effect of information on policymaking, their original data set of more than 25,000 party and amicus briefs filed between 1984 and 2015, their interviews with former Supreme Court clerks and attorneys, and the text of the related court opinions to argue that the briefs matter, and they matter more when parties hire experienced attorneys known to the justices to craft excellent information-rich briefs. Hazelton and Hinkle interrogate both the causes and the consequences of providing that information to the justices. They demonstrate how that information operates differently in terms of influencing who wins and what policy is announced. Dr. Rachel K. Hinkle, JD and PhD, is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Buffalo. Her research agenda focuses on judicial politics with particular attention to gleaning insights into legal development from the content of judicial opinions through the use of computational text analytic techniques. Dr. Morgan L.W. Hazelton, JD and PhD, is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and has a courtesy appointment in the School of Law at St. Louis University. She studies how features of court systems influence the decisions that both litigants and judges make. And I'm delighted to welcome both of them to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Susan. Morgan and I are super happy to be here with you today. Uh, no, I'm really, really excited about this. Well, let's start with how it is that you came to this project. You, you were both lawyers and you have PhDs in political science. It's a rare combination, although one that we see on this podcast a lot, since I really like that intersection of political science and law. So tell me it is how you came together to, to write this um, project. What's, what's the origin story here? So I had the good fortune of starting graduate school the first day with Rachel, and we were in the same cohort, and we sort of immediately gravitated towards each other. We both were coming from having gone to law school. I had practiced. Rachel had clerked in the both the district and court of appeals level. We were coming out of... Um, I was an English major and she was a history major. So we were really interested in text to begin with, also interested in quantitative research. And so this was sort of a natural, the kind of things that we were just really interested in studying and talking about was, we think what lawyers do matters to the policy, the very important policy that the Supreme Court's announcing, but they are often sort of ignored in our equations about it. And we thought that there was a lot more to be done there. So like I said, from my perspective, it was just like being incredibly lucky to have, you know, the fortune of starting with Rachel. 
I have to absolutely agree with Morgan on that. It's oftentimes one chooses a course of graduate study based on an advisor or the prestige of an institution, uh, but to have such a wonderful peer to go through the process with you is uh, one of the kind of unsung benefits of, of getting a PhD. It's a tough process, but to have someone um, by your side to go through it with you is invaluable, not only at the time, but as, uh, as we've seen in, in the years since. Thanks so much for sharing that story. Uh, it's kind of a unique one. It's rare to see it laid out in a book so eloquently such that it is both the sort of the person and also the experiences before coming to graduate school that come together to allow this kind of collaboration. And this is a magnificent book with an enormous amount of work that precedes the writing of the book because of the original data sets that you're putting together and the interviews, which we'll get to um, in a minute. But a lot of people haven't looked at a Supreme Court brief, uh, downloaded one, uh, anxiously waited in June you know, to see the dissent, et cetera. So let's start with this. Wait, what is a brief? And, and what there was more than one kind. So just to explain that a little bit, sort of like brief 101, and then we'll move to the sort of more detailed stuff that you unearth. Yeah, Rachel, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Susan. Uh, I think one of the most interesting thing to think about the briefs are an interesting thing is that you don't realize until you get into the nitty gritty or if you file these on a regular basis, they're color coded. So when you think about a brief and there's word limits, so they're relatively thin kind of pamphlets, if you will. Um, but you can look at a, sh a bookshelf or a pile on a table and see where the arguments are coming from. So for example, and petitioner respondents briefs have their own colors, but the amicus briefs are in dark green and light green. So you can look at a stack of briefs and just kind of have a sense of how how many light green ones are there and how many dark green ones there are. And in some ways, we take that visual experience to kind of the quantitative level. But that's, so so that's what they look like. But um, at their core, they're arguing to the Supreme Court about how the court should rule in a given case and why. Um, right. So almost all of them argue a certain side should win. Um, but, and the parties are primarily concerned about winning, but the amicus curiae, the friends of the court who engage in this process and write these briefs to the court, write these, these dark and yellow green documents, um, they might care about a particular issue in the case, a particular um, type of legal argument, that the, a way they want to say the Supreme Court developed the law. Um, in particular, it's not just about kind of the what the court's doing, but the how that it's doing it. So the same outcome could be wanted by religious groups or by the ACLU, but they may want it decided for different reasons. And that's where the justices are going to hear those arguments. The, the two sides will submit something, but this is, is very, very different. Um, how Has this always been what is submitted to the Supreme Court? Has it been roughly the same over time or has there been change in how how the briefs are submitted and how many are submitted, how long they are, how complicated they are? Well, I'll just start by saying there used to be more permission needed to file an amicus brief, right? These are groups and organizations and individuals that literally don't have a direct dog in the fight, right? They are not part of the litigation. And it's pretty unusual looking at courts to see this really robust amicus participation. And the Supreme Court's allowed it for a long time. It used to be you needed more permission than you do now. It's very open-ended. And the Supreme Court is inviting quite a bit of it. Um, which is which is really interesting, right? The Court of Appeals, they don't want it. Judge Posner publicly said, like, we don't want to deal with this. We don't, this is not what we think we're doing. But at the Supreme Court, this really important policymaking body at the top of the hierarchy, they're like, we, they could turn off that spigot and they've just opened it up more and more. So they, it must mean something to them. And what do you think it means to the Supreme Court? What are they looking for? Or what do they, what, what do they take from these um, arguments? So 
Yeah, please, what I Morgan. Think and, oh, sorry. Uh, what I think is going on is a couple of things. One is all of the all of the work we did, the interviews, something that you hear over and over again from former clerks is that the justices are really concerned about getting something technically wrong. Like they don't want to accidentally rule in some way in an intellectual property case that somehow just wrecks havoc on, you know, whole industries. And so they're looking for information, specifically technical information. They're really hungry for it. But we think it's more than that. And we think what they're also looking for is important groups in the political space. Are they coming together? Do they want the same thing? Are they seeing policy coalescence? Are they seeing groups that are willing to really invest resources into these briefs? Because they cost tens of thousands of dollars to put together usually if someone's not donating their time. So are you seeing that these groups are willing to, groups powerful and well-resourced enough to put together these briefs, are they saying the same things? And we think that's a type of, perhaps not majoritarianism, but it is a way of getting opinions of publics that should matter particularly to the court. Just to follow up on Morgan's point, one kind of example finding from the book that um, is kind of from this, this thread of thought is that the side that presents the more braves total is a bit more likely to win the case. Right. So that's a very kind of blunt measure. But we talk about those light green and those dark green. Uh, that measure suggests that it's not that the court is just counting and then going with the side that has more. Uh, but the side with, that has more does a little bit better. Right. So that might be right. That's this signal Morgan was talking about of how many people care on this side of the issue. And they care enough to invest all these resources in creating this brief versus how many care in this kind of costly signaling way on the other side. So it's not the number of people who signed the brief that matters. It's the number of briefs, right? This one of these, the nuances that we kind of teased out. Morgan, yeah, please. Sorry. And to piggyback on what Rachel's saying on the opinion side, what we're seeing is to the extent that they're saying consistent, very similar things that they've really honed in on. This is the argument that we are presenting, right? The facts and the arguments and all of this information that gets reflected much more in the opinion when there's consistency across party and amicus briefs for the same side. So we've, um, Morgan, you mentioned a little bit earlier the interviews. And so actually this might be a moment to sort of mention the incredible methodology that this book uses because it, it uses a mix of all sorts of qualitative and quantitative research in order to produce something that I really recommend to anybody who's thinking about the Supreme Court or thinks they understand how the Supreme Court uh, operates. So um Tell us a little bit about uh, all of the things that you put together in order to come up with these observations um, about the court. We'll, we'll start with the interviews and then we can move on to, to the others. But uh, Rachel, you want to start us? If we're talking interviews, credit where credit is due. That is all Morgan. So I'm going to pass that one over to her. That's very kind of Rachel to say. So with the interviews, we ended up with a little bit shy of, of 20 interviews. And so we went out and sought former clerks and then attorneys who had signed off on a brief before the Supreme Court. So we're litigating before the Supreme Court. It turns out those two groups overlap pretty well. And so I believe we have at least six overlapping individuals. And really just wanted to talk to them about their experiences and their perspectives about, okay, on the litigator side, what goes into how you create these briefs? What are you thinking about? What are you thinking the justices want out of them? How do you coordinate? And that's one thing that started to be highlighted more recently, especially on the law school side in law reviews is like this acknowledgement that there's massive coordination going on between amiki these amicus brief writers and the party and then also on the litigate uh, sorry on the former clerk side they're the first line of defense to consume those briefs they're going to tell the justice 
in all likelihood, we know Ginsburg would say, I want three stacks, must read, yeah, probably, and yeah, don't, don't even bother, right? But that's still a stack, right, in front of them of these all say the same thing. So information is still, even when they're not reading, the clerk is filtering that kind of information through to the justice is what we believe. And did everybody say the same thing, or did you get some differences of opinions within these interviewers, uh, interviewees, such uh, that, you know, whether you should have, I think one of your examples in the book has to do with redundancy. Should you say the same thing that somebody else is saying? So like, what, what did, was it consistent what you heard from the interviewers? It wasn't. And I, I loved that, actually, because what we see from the social science research and our own research on the topic is, so you have the Supreme Court has formal rule 10 and says, we don't want repetitive briefs. And when I talk to former clerks, for the most part, they're saying, man, I don't want to read repetitive briefs. Why are you doing this to us? You know, who, who wants to sort of deal with that? But then what the social science research, including our show, is that they tend to be very, very effective. And what I heard from some litigators, not all was, well, if it's worth saying once, why not say it again and again, right? That there were litigators, these attorneys who understood, we think it matters to say it over and over again. And our research, the research of Pam Corley, Paul Collins, and others would Jim Spriggs would absolutely back that up. Paul Collins, friend of the podcast, who was on just two shows ago talking about a piece that uh, uh, he wrote in a symposium that we all did in polity. So it was kind of fun to see his name and others in your acknowledgments. Um, Is there any difference that you see in terms of what the litigants submit on the part, uh, on the you know, for their clients, as opposed to the friend of the court briefs that are coming from the outside? Did you observe anything that's different? Um, yeah, let me jump in a little on that one. Uh, there are some interesting differences. And, and I'll, I did some of the work on the more individual stuff. And Morgan did um, some of the work on how folks coordinate across the briefs and that we really see difference there with parties and amici. So I'll kick that over to her next. Um, but in terms of individual uh, of litigants versus amici, one of the things we see is we uh, one of our kind of key themes throughout the book, and you mentioned in the intro, is how much those resources and experience before the court can matter. And we really see that emerge for amicus briefs in a particularly prominent way, and that isn't always the case for litigant briefs, which. Uh, could be because those attorneys associated with the case have been representing the litigants throughout the litigation. And that's kind of how they made it to the Supreme Court with that case. Whereas uh, a lot of groups and organizations that file amicus briefs do so on a regular basis, and they and their attorneys gain that experience over time. They're, in a sense, kind of more repeat players where litigants and their attorneys can be kind of more one-shotters in the experience. So, um, we do see uh, some distinctions there where the theory has a little more traction with the amicus briefs. Um, also, because those folks are choosing to be there, right? They're deciding which case to participate in. So there are some differences there, which kind of track what we would expect, how those two different briefs operate institutionally. Okay. So um, the interviews uh, allowed you to talk to the people who actually read these briefs and who worked with the briefs about their impressions, but you did not just rely on that kind of um, narrative, qualitative um, interviewing. You also created a database of all of the briefs, uh, which can you just tell us a little bit about how you were able to pull that uh, off and together um, and, and how that then was, uh, was the basis of the research? Sure, Susan, I'll take that one. Um, again, uh, Morgan and I put a tremendous amount of work in establishing that database. And one question we get about the project is, uh, when, how long did it take to write the book? And I, it, I don't know if we wrote the book or the book evolved a little bit, uh, but the answer is we've been working on this project. We've decided for something in the neighborhood of a decade. Uh, it's, it's been a long process. The data collection has been a big part of that. Um, 
I would say there's kind of two ways to answer the question of how did we amass these, you know, 25 plus thousand briefs and all of the data associated with them. Um, the first part of the answer is we were able to code computer algorithms to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, everything from optical character recognition of a scanned page uh, to extracting citations to previous Supreme Court precedents. Um, the second part about how we were successful is we recognized the limitations of that. And when we had to do something with a human being, we did it with a human being. So some of the examples of that would include um, just pulling attorney names out of the documents was something we could pull the paragraph with the list of attorneys out automatically. But then we or our research assistants went through and manually pulled out individual names. And there was a lot of uh, hands-on work coding, which of these attorneys are the same people. The same with the groups filing the brief. So a lot of it was done with algorithms, but a lot of it was also done with just kind of tender, loving care <laughs> by human hands to really supplement that so that we have confidence in the data where we needed to. And as Rachel's describing how we were able to sort of get the information, the variables we needed out of the briefs, just to talk about how we got the documents in the first place, right, and built this corpus um, was a mixture of primarily Westlaw, but then we needed to fill in, right? So we filled in with Lexis, and then Rachel had to spend far more time in the basement than I did, but we lived in the uh, archives at the Cornell Law School has one of the repositories for the briefs. And so we had our little carts and our little colored briefs and uh, brought in addition, they were, the librarians were so kind to us to let us bring in additional scanners so that we could have two of us scanning at once so that we could have as complete a set for the years that we were analyzing as possible. It's just reading what you did just made my head spin. I mean, having looked at some of these things of the sort of, you know, the the needing to pull from both Westlaw and elsewhere and pulling the the actual physical copies, it, it's amazing, amazing work. Um, and yes, when you say how long does a book take, is it about the time it took to put together the research and or the time that it took you to write it up. And this is definitely the kind of book where you can see that front ending. Go ahead, Rachel. I think I just wanted to say, like we've collected the data. It is all of the data we used for the book, all of those data sets are, we've made them public. They're on our websites. So we want, wait, we don't want to stop here, right? We want the work to go forward. Uh, we built, we talked about Paul Collins, we built on his work. He wrote this amazing book about Amicus Brief years ago. He made his data available. We very much want to continue that tradition and kind of uh, make all of that effort even more worthwhile to the entire scholarly community. So I just wanted to throw that in there. No, and both of your websites are in the show notes. So if you're listening to the podcast and you want to go see this amazing stuff and you want to write it, I'm not going to directly link it. I'm going to make you to go to Rachel and Morgan's websites and just pass through there because they're beautiful and they really give you a little bit more of a sense about the kind of interesting scholarship that they've done in the past and are still working on now. So, um, but amazing that you have made that public. Okay. Was there anything else that you used as the basis of these, um, of these findings. Uh, oh, yes, it's the actual Supreme Court decisions themselves and what happened in them. How hard was that to pull out? And what kind of, was that something that you had to do yourself or you could borrow from someone else? Uh, that part was a little bit more manageable. Uh, the one element we had to do is uh, extract majority opinions in particular and, and separate them out from those separate opinions. Um, but we actually pulled in another piece of information, which was the lower court opinion. And, and this was feedback uh, from very helpful scholars along the way. I, the details are lost to me in the midst of ancient time, um, but hopefully they know who they are and they know they're appreciated. But there was a concern that if we want to think about the impact of briefs, we have to make sure the briefs aren't pulling from the lower court opinion and it's the lower court opinion that's affecting the Supreme Court. So we also went and got those lower court opinions. So we had those in the mix and we could kind of control and pull that off to the side. So everything we're finding about briefs is kind of accounting for that 
um, in the mix of the information going to the Supreme Court. That was actually fairly difficult uh, to locate uh, the just a citation to the lower court opinion and then to go get the text of that. It's uh, not as trivial as one would think, but time well spent. Um, let's talk a little bit about the findings. Um, in in chapter two, you lay out you know, how the attorney and litigant characteristics actually influence the type of information that they're providing. And you've, and you've mentioned some of this in the discussion so far as to who brings what to the court. But when you look at the briefs, what are the sort of basic patterns, the big, broad findings that you walk away from, from looking at all of this material? I would say... Uh, it, so we look at various features of how the briefs are impacted, but the main, the big story of the book is information. How is information getting to the court and what is it doing? And when we just look at how much information is in a brief, we see the number of attorneys, the number of filers, the number of people signing that brief. Uh, that The more people involved, the more information the brief has. We also find the more experienced those folks are. And, and we measure that experience with our very own data. We have the, you know, all these years of data. We know who's in there. We know who, what attorney signed a brief. We know who submitted one. We just count it, which is the beauty of the data set. So the more times you've been doing this, the more information you provide. Um, we, you know, we see former Supreme Court clerks provide more information. Former solicitors general provide more information. And it just really... Uh, Many people assume that these kind of characteristics would allow you to build this kind of better, more informative brief. And we, you know, we got in there up to our elbows in the data and that's what it shows. Morgan. And we were really also interested in the coordination piece. How is this being built out? Because what we know is that the attorneys for the parties are working with the amici, right? These outside groups to coordinate. They cannot dictate what will be in the brief. That would be a, an ethical violation, but they certainly are coordinating and they're known as amicus queens or amicus wranglers and they're doing all this coordinating work. And so we also wanted to see, well, experience on the side of the attorneys for the party. Does that affect what the amici look like? And vice versa, because we also know that sometimes attorneys for an amicus will almost be anointed as like a shadow brief to fix problems with an inexperienced attorney for the party. And what's interesting is that we see as the party attorneys are more experienced, the amicus briefs are more different than the party brief. And we think that's a divide and conquer technique that they're using. Whereas the more experienced the amicus attorney, actually, it looks more like the party brief. So we get this really interesting feedback. And Rachel and I were sort of laughing the other day that also former clerks, the more former clerks that are on an amicus brief, the more it looks like the party brief, even though our former clerks are saying, please don't be repetitive. And we don't think it's that they're they're just thinking of repetitive in a different way. This is more similarity in the sense of we are focused on these main issues in, in a similar way, not just simply regurgitating the same things. And you raise in the book, you, 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 you frame the book with, with a particular case, which involves uh, a stop of a car and a dog that you know, smells something and whether or not this is probable cause. And it comes down to like whether the dog had his, the training updated and all of these small details, which is a great, I mean, it's a wonderful example. You thread it throughout the book and it's not one that's familiar. And it's also the case that, that the person defending the man who was stopped is a public defender, somebody without enormous resources. You contrast that elsewhere in the book with very, very famous attorneys that many people know are repeatedly at the court who are getting $1,300 an hour to work on a case. And so you can, you can then see how it is that the external briefs being supplied by people who have that more elite background would be so important. And I think that the book, I, I love the example that you chose. I love that you did not choose something familiar to all of us where we'd be like, I know that friend of the court brief. It, this is something down in the weeds. And that really helps 
the books show how the uh, what what um, I, I can't remember if it was Rachel or Morgan who said earlier about tech being the fear of being technically wrong that the justices have and the fact that they don't know anything about drug sniffing dogs. That's not their training. And therefore, they need somebody to give them this information so that they don't make a mistake. So I, I, I just, I love that example. And it really, really makes the book more readable and fun in terms of that case. Because, you know, who doesn't like a case with a, a dog that's, you know, qualifications may not be exactly right, but we're cheering for it. Um, okay, back to the book, not the dog. Uh, Aldo. We all love Aldo, though. <laughs> it's a great character, and it's a really a lovely opening, too. Um, your data set stops in 2015, um, and of course, books. This book came out uh, in 2022, and we all who have written books know that that means that you handed it in far earlier. So I guess one question I would ask you is, like, since you've submitted the book and since you've had to, you know, see it in print, is there anything that has changed in the briefs that you suspect might have an impact on what you would say? Or do you think things are kind of chugging along at the court in a similar way since 2015? We actually think that we did a little bit of work since then with the most recent term back in October. We wrote a piece for the Monkey Cage, which was a blog that was attached to the Washington Post. And so we were looking at, okay, if we look at Dobbs, we can see that the St. Thomas Society's brief had a particular impact because they're talking about quickening. No one else is. Lo and behold, it's in the opinion. But we also wanted to do a little bit of pressure. You, we wanted to look ahead a little bit. And one of the cases that we looked at the time was Merrill versus Milligan. It's now known as Allen versus Milligan. And it's the Alabama redistricting case. It sort of shocked everybody. And when we looked at it back in October, you know, the case just came out and the opinion just came out in June. What we saw was the briefs for a finding that there was a violation of the Voting Rights Act and for keeping those protections from the Voting Rights Act in case were much, first off, we saw more information, we saw more of them, and we saw more consistent information among issues with experience of attorneys and all these things that Rachel and I from the book know are going to affect who wins and then what the opinion's going to look like. And lo and behold, it did come out that they protected the Voting Rights Act. And you can go and look back at all of the media coverage calls. It's surprising and a curveball and shocking. And we felt really good about the fact you could look at the briefs and foresee, yes, it looks like actually a very strong case. At the time, we felt like, okay, we're going to make this bold, <laughs> this bold prediction because that was not where people thought it was going, but it's where the data told us it was going. And we'll have a link to that also in the show notes so people can take a look at that monkey cage um, piece um, about Milligan. No, thanks so much for, for mentioning that. Uh, and uh, what has, do you think that the people who write these briefs are reading your book and reacting to it? Do you think there's a connection between the political science research and the strategy of the people writing briefs? We would certainly hope so. That would be our hope. And we would love to be helpful. We're currently actually working on a piece that's actually oriented towards practitioners. Uh, because the book, we tried to keep the technical language to a minimum. There, we spared people some really glorious equations about one of our main measures called cosine similarity, where I, I went to law school. Law school is not, many lawyers are not in love with large equations. And we understand that. And so we're trying to even make it more accessible because we'd like to be helpful to practitioners making these kind of decisions. So I think that along the way, you've, you've listed out so many of the um, important contributions you think the briefs make in terms of the kind of information that's given to the justices, 
um, the fact that uh, sometimes, uh, as you mentioned, the actual words from a brief will end up in the majority opinion. And so you're able to see how that information was shared. Uh, for example, Morgan, as you were just mentioning about, about quickening, is there something that we have not said um, about your findings that's really, really important for listeners to understand about how it is that the briefs end up affecting the outcomes. Because this is not a book, I just want to say for those potential readers, this is not a book that is only interested in what you can find in the weeds. This is very, very focused on how this actually has affected Supreme Court decisions. Rachel, you want to start us off? Sure. I'd love to, Susan. Thanks. Um, I was talking earlier about kind of the all the effort labor we put into pulling out the attorney names and pulling out the filer names. And um, I want to stop for a second and stand back and talk about the big picture. Like, why did we do that? And the reason or one of the reasons we did that is because we were interested in information, how briefs get formulated and how they impact the court. But a lot of what we knew about just kind of impacting the court in general is that filers or or, sorry, litigants, the research mostly focused on litigants with a lot of experience and resources are more likely to win. And attorneys with a lot of experience and expertise are more likely to get wins for their clients. But there were multiple explanations for why that might be. And in thinking about the impact of information, it gave us an opportunity to address that question while thinking about how information works. So essentially, we broke that up into kind of a two-step process, right? First, you have the creation of the brief. And if you have really experienced and expert filers and attorneys with lots of resources and experience and background and insider knowledge, they can write a really great brief. But then there's another, then there's a second step. A really great brief can influence the court, right? Can make it more likely that your side wins, can make the majority opinion look, use the words from your brief, like quickening. But with all the data in hand, what we were able to find out is that All that experience and expertise works two ways. It does help you write a better brief, but it turns out that a better brief written by an experienced Supreme Court litigator does even better than a really well-written brief by someone who hasn't been before the court before. So if you could like just search out the, you know, brief writing savant who's never written a brief before, but they're really great at it and you could hire them or you could hire a former solicitor general who's also really great at that task. You want to get the former solicitor general because the court knows who they are, right? So when an attorney or a filer appears before the court a lot, they gain a reputation and they know they're going to be there tomorrow. So they have to be truthful today. And the court knows that. And the attorneys know that. And the amica know that. And because they all know that they're going to be there tomorrow, they all know they can trust each other today. So we find resources matter two ways. They help you create a better brief. And that trustworthy reputation also gives you a boost in those outcomes, in winning the case, and getting and in, in influencing the majority opinion language. At one point in the book, you talk about uh, the capacity to take in information, um, and and when you were describing the story about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the briefs being stacked on a table, I, you know, I think about, I don't print them because I would be charged so much by the department for the reams and reams of paper, but I have these enormous PDF files where I just think, is this over yet? You know, and it's not, you know, and so, um, I guess my question is, uh, early in the book, you talk about the, the briefs are shorter. The opinions are shorter. Everything is shorter. You know, it, they've expanded and expanded, expanded, uh, the affirmative action case is something like, I can't remember if it's 237 or 47 pages. So is, did you, is there, did you pick up in your interviews any um, question about the numbers? I understand what you're saying, that the more that come in on a particular side seems to affect the justices. It seems to tell them, oh, okay, big organizations that represent lots of people think this, and so maybe this is oh, the way to go. But is there also a danger of there just being so many that they can't be digested? Um, well, I think that's a really excellent question. And it did come up in interviews, and it was something that we thought about. And I first off have to say, 
if you ever just find yourself in a position to need to interview groups of people that former Supreme Court clerks and litigators are just fantastic people to talk to. They're incredibly smart and interesting and just have a really great perspective on things. Um, and, and I was really grateful for their time. Now, I would say that among the former clerks, they would say, look, they would generally say they read all the briefs. So some would admit, I might not pay as much attention if I feel like I've read it before, or say, I don't think all of the other clerks read every brief, right? And where we think that it matters, that text matters, even if it's not as carefully viewed, is first off, the physical stack saying, look, these people are all saying the same thing in a costly way seems to still matter. There's also the issue of repetition, right? That we think it's about policy coalescence and Corley and Collins and others have pointed out and the psychology literature would point out just hearing things over and over again matters, right? That that starts to, an argument that may have seemed strange at the beginning doesn't seem strange after you've heard it 50 times. Right, and especially when you're like, oh, all of these people believe this argument, that means something about the quality of the argument. So we think that there's policy coalescence and the, the issue of repetition, and that even if every word is not being read, the knowledge that that is happening, that it's being repeated along with the physical act of <laughs> reading things over and over again matters. So two questions, well, to, an observation. First of all, I bet the two of you really good at interviewing because of having both the experience of the JD, the legal training and legal practice, and the political science training. So I, I wonder if you're very, very unique in the way that you can interact with those former clerks, because I don't, I, I think that the brains of lawyers and the brains of political scientists are actually quite different. They, they, fixate on different questions. And I wonder if you just speak both languages. So you're great translators, you know, you're just great translators. I, I sometimes talk of the JD and the PhD as having multiple fluencies. I like that too. My other question is perhaps too cynical. So, you know, push back on it. So a lot of people, so it's, it's very interesting what you're saying. If I hear something over and over again, it might make more sense to me. And in the case of the canine dogs and the issues of probable cause and how it is that we know that a dog is correct, that a, a drug might be present. It seems to me that might be a lot easier to, as you hear something over and over again, to become more convinced of it. I, I don't think the judges were selected, the nine that are there, some maybe for their views on probable cause and the extent to which they're willing to give the police more or less power, perhaps. But not this particular thing is not what they were questioned on in their Senate hearings. But they were questioned on other things, like Roe v. Wade, um, like the Second Amendment. And I wonder if there, if you're able to separate them, are there cases in which ideology sort of trumps information and repetition and the skill with which the brief is written and the organization that puts it forward because, again, speaking very cynically, the justices are cherry-picking the evidence from the briefs, like in something like the Second Amendment case, such that they don't really care about that history, but they want that history. So do, do we have not I, I guess my question is, is it the case that in things that are less ideological, we see the briefs really impacting people more and do we have evidence that the justices would be affected by information in these cases in which they have sort of been selected um, ahead of time to have opinions on? I think that sounds like a really plausible story. And of the many, many questions we answer in the book, there are, of course, many more we do not. And you've, you've hit upon one, uh, which is uh, it just shows, I think, the uh, the rich nature of the research topic that 300 pages later there are still all kinds of interesting questions and the more we figure out the more nuances we dive into the more 
things we can think of like, oh, this, this would probably matter more here, right? Highly technical areas like patent law and intellectual property, right? Where they, this need for in, information and fear of making mistakes is particularly heightened. So it could have to do with uh, technicality. It could have to do with salience, right? You know, how this is the thing I really care about and you're not going to convince me otherwise. Um, which, and also, right, obviously things with these very clear ideological um, leanings, although even so, if I was a brief writer, I would think, well, I have the opportunity to craft that bit that makes it, you know, it could be my, you know, everybody laughed at me for putting quickening in that brief, but, you know, who's who's laughing now because that made it into the opinion? Um, did I persuade that justice to think in that way? Not exactly, but there is a certain level of influence there, right? And now, Morgan. I would say, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't think it's cynical. I don't think your question's cynical, and that would be the, maybe that's just the political scientist in me, but I, I think that the law side, there is a lot more legal realism for many professors and academics than we realize uh, sometimes, but I think it's not a cynical question, it's something we cared about. We described, you know, ideology indubitably matters is, is in our conclusions, and we did try to control for things like salience, which aren't exactly the same as these big ticket ideological items, but tend to correlate very highly. Even then, we're seeing that the briefs matter, right? Even with controlling for issues of salience. And I do think there's definitely more work to be done. Interestingly enough, traditionally, justices had experience on the prosecution side. And especially our more conservative justices, our Alitos and our Roberts definitely have this type of experience. And it used to be the only experience that you saw, but with Jackson coming onto the court for the first time, we have different, right? Like the idea of like, let's get in public defenders, let's get in individuals that have a different perspective and will that matter? And I'd love to, to focus specifically on that in future research and see how that matters. Well, um, as we're wrapping up, I want to hear, uh, first of all, if there's anything that we have not hit upon that was really meaningful to you in the book. And second, I, and if not, if there is nothing, I also want to hear about what you're doing now. And I just want to add that this was a deeply evocative book. It's really hard to read this book without um, wanting to uh, both dive into the questions that you're asking and also apply what you have here to um, your own research. And so I want to thank you for that as somebody who like writes and thinks about the court. And I also want to say to listeners and people who think about assigning this book, now parts of this book are completely assignable to an undergraduate. And this book is readable by anybody uh, because it's written so clearly and not in the weeds. On the other hand, if you're you know, a, a deep researcher into information and policy and the Supreme Court, it's also there for you too. So it's, it's really beautifully constructed in that way. So anyway, if there's anything we left out and also where, what are you doing now and what do we have to look forward to reading? So, well, I guess I think that we've covered the main things about the book that, that I was interested in talking about we this was a labor of love and and I'm glad that it exists and I hope that people you know that we're advancing the ball right down the field of how do we understand what are the roles of attorneys and this information right in policy making and we also Rachel and I, along with Michael Nelson at Penn State, have a book that was just published this week called The Elevator Effect from Oxford that's about how collegiality matters. So here we were focused on, okay, we have lawyers and then we have the judges and how does this matter? There we're actually getting into how do the interpersonal relationships 
among judges matter, which is particularly funny because we're looking at things like who's in the same courthouse, how long have they served together, how long do they think they're going to serve together, and Rachel and Mike and I all were in the same office in graduate school, so it was a, a topic that's <laughs> dear to our hearts, but it's also about thinking about well, what else is really mattering, how do issues of information and psychology come together to form these like really important policies that we're seeing and if we're seeing separate opinions and things of that nature and yeah absolutely that's a it's it's no mistake that what morgan is working on is what i am working on because when you find a really great co-author you hang on to them uh, and you keep on going (laughs) rachel has a fantastic book about unpublished opinions that is in the works I am working this summer. I'm writing a book um, about the impact of uh, the publication, the selective publication norm in the circuit courts. And it's a somewhat, uh, not okay, but a kind of boring technical detail that when you gather lots and lots of data, it turns out is causing and perpetuating some disparities in power and privilege throughout the United States that we didn't know about because nobody bothered to collect all the boring data, which I did because that's a thing that I do. <laughs> But that book has no wonderful interviews because Morgan isn't involved. But there's lots of data and lots of interesting stories about how it affects judges and how it affects litigants and how people experience uh, federal appellate courts in a different way, uh, depending on their background, the issues their case involves. Um, Just because of this kind of institutional detail where judges can just say this case doesn't matter. It's not law. We're resolving the issue and that's it. And the, they're shorter, they they call they refer to less law, they don't make policy. So that's my my current project for the well, one of my current projects this summer. Well, that book sounds like the companion piece for Steve Laddick's shadow docket oh, as absolutely. It's the shadow docket in the circuit court. hundred percent I Yes, I ordered his book the second it was available. The, Super excited about it. It's yes. It's you need very to listen to the podcast too. He was on two weeks ago, and he has some great things that are not in the book that are on the podcast, and it is an amazing book to look forward to. But that's not the book we're talking about today. We've been talking. Uh, so, Juan, Rachel, when you're done with that one, we'll we'll have you on and. Uh, we'll uh, have a link in the show notes to Elevator Effect, and also we'll try to get that book done as well. I love, really loved this book. Um, it is Morgan L. Hazelton and Rachel K. Hinkle's Persuading the Supreme Court, The Significance of Briefs in Judicial Decision-Making, published by the University of Canvas, Kansas Press in 2022. Thank you both for joining me on New Books and Political Science. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much.